there were demands made, definite demands, which took me away from the world, you know, and at one point almost away from everything, music, family, and all, because the sacrifice had to be within an inch of my life, almost literally. I've been given my freedom now. I can act, I can be, I can live as I want to. I think I've, all of it has been given back to me, that I'm free. In 1963, Alice Coltrane was performing at the New York club Birdland when she met the love of her life, saxophonist and jazz legend in the making, John Coltrane. It didn't take long for the couple to fall in love and start a life and a family together. Alice joined John's band on piano, and together they pursued a new musical freedom. They gave epic performances that felt more like spiritual communion than traditional jazz. Then, suddenly, it was over. On July 17, 1967, at just 40 years old, John Coltrane died of liver cancer. Alice found herself a newly widowed mother of four as she tried to navigate the tragedy of her husband's death. A guiding force emerged in her life, an Indian spiritual teacher named Swami Sachidananda. How she turned personal crisis into a creative triumph is the story of her 1971 masterpiece, Journey in Sachidananda. The album turned 50 this year, but its mix of soulful jazz, Indian music, and freeform improvisation is still a touchstone for radical artists. Everyone from Solange to Radiohead to Alice's great-nephew, Flying Lotus. Radiohead used the title track of Journey as live walk-on music in 1995, and bassist Colin Greenwood has said that Alice's heart playing and string writing directly inspired material on Kid A. According to Brandy Younger, a jazz harpist and longtime admirer of Alice, praise for Journey and Alice Coltrane's work overall is long overdue. I'll be quick to say people are just late to the party. Sometimes things have to be thrust in their face for them to notice that, oh, this is just a masterpiece, no big deal, and I didn't notice it because I was busy bashing it or the, the critics were bashing it at the time and always comparing to John Coltrane instead of just listening to it for what it was and, and realizing that this is a not just a masterpiece, but that she was this powerful, powerful spiritual being that all of this came out of. One, two, three, four, five, breakdown, baby. I'm Brittany Spanos, senior writer for Rolling Stone and your host for Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums, an Amazon original podcast, where we dig into 10 albums off our brand new list. In this episode, Alice Coltrane's Journey in Sachidananda. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery. Code Wondery. In the past, 
Alice Coltrane's work has sometimes been overshadowed by her husband's, but these days her records are cited just as often as his. Now she's recognized as a musical icon in her own right. In 2020, Journey was one of only a handful of jazz albums to make the 500 Greatest Albums list, and the sole jazz selection made by a woman. It's a legendary record, backed by the incredible story of a single Black mother who reached deep inside herself to create something beautiful at the time of her deepest pain. Rolling Stone senior editor Hank Steamer has written about jazz for 20 years. During the pandemic, he found himself returning to Alice Coltrane's albums constantly. In 2021, he talked to Alice's collaborators, family, and admirers about the album's history and why Journey in Satchitananda still feels so vital. In the fall of 2021, I visited the quiet, leafy Long Island suburb of Dix Hills, about 50 miles east of Manhattan. There, on three and a half acres, is a modest two-story house, set back from the street by a generous-sized lawn. This is the home where John and Alice Coltrane lived together from 1964 until John's death in 1967. It's where John wrote A Love Supreme, his 1965 suite that's recognized as one of the greatest jazz albums ever made. It's also where Alice recorded her first five albums as a leader, including Journey and Sachidananda in a basement studio. Steve Fulgoni is a local businessman who helped to save the home from demolition. Along with the surviving Coltrane family, he's heading up plans to restore it and eventually open it to the public. He took some time to show me around the property. Unfortunately, there was a period of about four years where the builder intended to demolish the house, so he just walked away. And then it took a couple of years before the house was purchased by the town of Huntington. We had four years of the home being vacant, uh, vandalized, animals, water damage, mold. So when we go inside, you'll see that we're just down to the studs. Mm -hmm. um, it's certainly not as dramatic in terms of being a time capsule as it was when uh, when I first came in. But is we'll there, get back there. Is there an idea of trying to sort of recreate some sort of the decor and the furniture? Or is that... Yeah, absolutely. You can still enter the small bedroom on the second floor where John composed A Love Supreme, the meditation room where Alice spent countless hours after John's death, and the basement that housed the studio. Is this the meditation room? Yeah, so this is Alice's meditation room right in here. We still have the shag rugs, which were gold, orange, and red. The walls were blue. And we absolutely hope that it will be a meditation room in the future, classroom. Uh, this hole in the wall that you see here was a stained glass window. And yeah, obviously the record we're talking about, Journey in Sachidananda, was made um, right under our, under our feet here. It's crazy to think about this kind of a setting being like the the site for like such a classic record. It's just a house, you know. Descending into the basement is like traveling back in time. The original blue carpet seen in period photos still covers the floor. So we're standing here in the area where the musicians would have been. So as you can see from this picture, she had her Steinway Grand piano over here. Most likely her organ was over there. Lions and Healy harp. So we're, that would be right here. Alice Coltrane's long journey to that basement in Dix Hills began in Detroit. She was born there as Alice McLeod in 1937. Her mother sang in the church choir, and her half-brother, Ernie Farrow, played jazz bass. 
Alice started taking piano lessons at age seven, sparking a lifelong love of classical music. From a young age, she performed at her family's church, Mount Olive Baptist. She also immersed herself in Detroit's rich 1950s jazz scene. Bassist Vishnu Wood was a longtime friend of Alice's who appeared on Isis and Osiris, the live track that closes Journey in Satchitananda. He remembers seeing her around town, performing with a lounge act called The Premieres and sitting in at bebop jam sessions. I knew her in, in Detroit because several musicians and I, among them Charles McPherson, Roy Brooks, drummer, Lonnie Haley, who played with Charles Mingus. But we all lived together in a flat in Detroit. It was on the campus of Wayne University. And we played all day and all night. And when the musicians would come to town, they'd always come by and jam in, in our loft. So Alice came by and she played also. That's how I met her. Alice came up in the, uh, the Black church in Detroit. And I liked her playing right away. It had a certain distinction to it, a certain depth. She met all the requirements. She could swing. She knew the, the jazz voicings. So she fit right in with Barry Harris and Tommy Flanagan and all the other great pianists who came out of Detroit. In 1960, Alice traveled to Paris with her first husband, the singer Kenneth Pancho Haygood. There she played with American expats and spent time with bebop piano legend Bud Powell. She also had her first child, Michelle. Her marriage soon fell apart, though, and she returned to the States. She went on the road with vibraphonist Terry Gibbs, and when the group started having trouble with its bassist, Alice recruited Vishnu Wood. Wood remembers the fateful meeting that occurred when Gibbs's band opened for John Coltrane at New York's Birdland. Anybody who was anybody in the jazz scene played Birdland. I took the gig, and we opened for Train many times at Birdland. So once we were sitting in the booth, Alice and I, and Train was on, and when he, in admission, he came over and said, oh, he said, y'all sure make a nice couple. I said, well, I think maybe you should sit down. I'm leaving. <laughs> and that's how they came together, okay? Shortly afterward, John Coltrane separated from his first wife, and he and Alice became a couple. By the following year, they had two sons together, John Jr. and Ravi, and along with Michelle, were living together in Dix Hills. Michelle Coltrane remembers the family's life at the time as happy and harmonious. The memories of that time would be riding in the car, listening to John, you know, rehearse. They were very engaged with us as children. They loved children. There might have been a lot more of us. And I remember... If you just interrupted the practice, it wasn't like hush, it was just very kind. I had this erector set. I remember John sitting down and helping me with it, helping me put it together. And they would just kind of always pay attention to you. You know, there'd be eye contact or I'd have my foot on my mother's foot on her. And while she's pressing down the pedal on the piano, no memories of feeling like we were in the way or anything. Because we were probably encouraged to come in. You know, children get happy when um, music is playing. Alice put her own musical career on hold in the first couple years of her relationship with John. John, meanwhile, produced some of his most profound and forward-thinking work to date. He collaborated with younger jazz radicals and absorbed influences from Indian music. He studied briefly with Ravi Shankar, and he and Alice even named their second son Ravi after him. To Alice, it was no accident that John's music reached new peaks as their relationship deepened and their young family grew. In a 1987 interview, the independent radio producer Dolores Brandon asked Alice about the changes that she and John brought about in each other. It's a very positive, high energy that manifested itself because of that association with him. He, I felt, brought out the best in me musically, 
somehow he was also inspired to bring out the avant-garde music. I feel that it was always in him being born with this gift, this God-given gift of music, that it was there somehow. To me, as a result of the association, it fully manifested. Do you think it had something to do with the birth of the children as well? I think all of it is a part of it because he was always inspired. He was very much a family man, always at home if he was not um, traveling, concertizing. So I do believe that that all of those factors contributed to his higher involvement, his higher innovation in music. Alice would play a more direct role in the next step of John's musical life. They married in 1965, and she took his name. In early 1966, she joined his band, which also included saxophonist Pharaoh Sanders and drummer Rashid Ali, her future sidemen on Journey and Sachidananda. On recordings made in Japan in the summer of 66, you can hear Alice's piano powering the band through sometimes nearly hour-long pieces. The couple also inspired each other spiritually, as Alice told Dolores Brandon. What we did was begin to reach out and look toward higher experiences in spiritual life and higher knowledge to be obtained in spiritual life. This is what we did. And our basic route was reading and hearing um, discourse talk by spiritual leaders and teachers, as well as our own engagement in meditation. John and Alice performed and recorded together throughout the rest of 1966 and into early 67. But in July of that year, John died suddenly of liver cancer, just four months after the birth of their third son, Oran. Few around him even knew he'd been sick. We did not go to the funeral of, of John. We were, my mother had a baby. She had a three, six-month-old baby, you know? And just as of now looking back, when I go back to reflect, I'm thinking, wow, she was 29 years old. You know, it's just unbelievable. And uh, I realized that she was faced with some some serious choices. And uh, she was just u- human, like the rest of us. And uh, children are still hungry, and they have to be bathed. While trying to care for her family, Alice got to work, both musically and spiritually. Before John died, they'd started to build a professional recording studio in their basement. The studio was finished after John's death, and seven months later, Alice started recording her first solo album there. She conceived the album, called A Monastic Trio, as a tribute to John, and brought in musicians she'd worked with in his band, Sanders, Ali, and bassist Jimmy Garrison. And she also began performing on a harp that, as she told Dolores Brandon, John had purchased for her before his death. He was long in love with the harp before he met you. That's why he... um got me interested, and he ordered that harp. I still have it today. His um, physical eyes never saw it. Took us a year to get it, because they, they're practically handmade. And But he ordered beautiful concert grand golden the crown. It's a beautiful concert grand harp, and I have it today. 
So he uh, really is responsible for that, being a part of my life now. When she played piano, Alice's music felt like stirring gospel. But when she used the harp, it took on an ethereal lightness. But Alice was in a dark place at the time. She was still grappling with John's death and trying to find herself spiritually. Her inner search eventually led her to a religious awakening, but it came at a price. As she described in her 1977 book, Monument Eternal, she started to undergo, quote, the profound ordeal of tapas, or austerity. Discussed in ancient Hindu texts, tapas is essentially an extreme form of meditation. During this process, Alice fasted, at one point dropping to 95 pounds, and sometimes slept for as little as two hours a week. She later remembered being, quote, astrally projected from the physical body on an almost daily basis. Eventually, she started to experience a new kind of clarity, as she explained in a 1970 documentary. I would like to say, to state at this time, that there were days that I know that I spent more than 20 hours in meditation. And there were periods of time that lapsed like beyond two or three weeks that I know that I was well beyond what the human endurance is when it comes to meditation. I found out so much about myself and about the people around me and about my husband and family. My personal experience uh, in meditation brought me face to face with God. Around the time she was encountering God in her meditations, Alice met a figure on earth who also helped her through. Born in 1914, Swami Sachidananda was an Indian yoga guru. In 1966, after years of study and teaching in his home country, he came to New York at the invitation of artist Peter Max and founded the Integral Yoga Institute. In 1969, as Woodstock was kicking off, he spoke to the huge crowd about the power of music and the importance of peace. Music is the celestial sound. And it is the sound that controls the whole universe. One of the many people who was taken with Sachidananda's message at the time was Alice's old friend, Vishnu Wood. He had a lot of retreats where we went and just spent time with him. And he, he gave a lot of what we call satsang, which is a spiritual guidance. For and a lot of his disciples, including me, had many issues. And he was able to kind of perceive what our issues was and address them in his own way and help us through mentoring, through compassion. Speaking to Alice about her struggles after John's death, Wood started to feel that Sachidananda might be able to help her too. There's a sensitivity between musicians and like we were discussing the challenge of trying to, to find her place and ab his absence, where she be, should be trying to take the music. All those kind of things came up. It was a very heavy feeling, a feeling that was too much for most people to bear. So I, I asked her if she wanted to meet my guru. And she said, well, yeah. So I took her and she met introduced her to Sachinananda, and the rest is kind of history. They clicked, and all of a sudden, she told me she was doing a journey into Sachinananda. I said, really? <laughs> that was kind of fast. Soon after meeting Swami Sachinananda, Alice found a way to honor him through music. Direct inspiration for Journey in Sachidananda comes from my meeting and association with someone who is near and dear to me, 
Alice wrote in the liner notes to her fourth album, referring to the title track. I am speaking of my own beloved spiritual preceptor, Swami Sachidananda. Alice recorded Journey in Sachidananda at the house in Dix Hills in November 1970 and rounded it out with one live track recorded in July of that year at Greenwich Village Club, The Village Gate. The album had the same spiritual gravity as John's late work, but where that music had often burned white hot, Alice kept hers at a low simmer. Journey's tranquil sound built on Alice's bluesy piano and shimmering harp and the sturdy vamps of bassist Cecil McBee. Pharaoh Sanders' trance-like soprano sax and Rashid Ali's impressionistic drumming added color. Alice had made references to yoga and Hinduism before in her music, but Journey was the first of her albums to feature an actual Indian instrument, the tambura, which provided a hypnotic drone. Alice invited her friend Tulsi Reynolds, another disciple of Sachidananda, to play the tambura during the session. The instrument had a unique function, as Reynolds recalled. The instrument sets up a sonic field in which the other instruments literally float and they can go anywhere within that. It's almost like the tambura forms the air in which everything can fly. It's a very subtle instrument. And um, Alice and I at the time were working on some concert projects just for Swami Satchitananda within the, the group of people that were studying with him. And we also became very good friends. We could spend a whole day together and not talk, which was wonderful for her because she wasn't a very um, communicative person in terms of speaking about whatever her thoughts were. It all came through the music. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com match. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Like Vishnu Wood, Cecil McBee had first met Alice Coltrane in Detroit. The bassist recalls being invited to jam sessions at her home by their mutual friend, the pianist Kirk Lightsey. She was the warmest human being I've ever seen in my life. She and Kirk Lightsey were close friends, you know, and I remember at those, a couple of those sessions, we would converse and I would just sit and kind of listen, that kind of thing. But she was like very, very calming and very, very easygoing. When I heard her play initially, she played very well, chord changes and things like that. This is another one of those Detroit musicians that if you come from Detroit, you got to be saying something. And here's one that was in that zone. When we came together later, she had gone into a whole other realm of thought. So I felt connected and respectful, given what she had intended to do by having spent time with her before. McBee remembers a rehearsal for Journey at Alice's home studio where she showed him her basic idea for the title track, a serene, endlessly repeating bass line. It was written out on paper. I recall that the, the, the notes were not exact. I guess she didn't really know too much about how to notate for the bass. And uh, so I finally regulated what she wanted me to do. And she said, that's it. That's the, you know, stay, just play that. Just stay with that. Whatever we do, just play that. I said, yes, (laughs) ma'am. Tulsi Reynolds remembers the album's afternoon recording session in the Dix Hills basement as being especially relaxed. It was, um, you know, it was a fully equipped studio. It was small very intimate and lovely. I mean, it had a window that looked out on green, you know, looked out at open trees in the field. It was lovely. It was a lovely place to record. Alice had other ways of setting the mood and bringing the musicians onto her wavelength. Here's Ed Michelle, who co-produced Journey and worked on many other albums with Alice throughout the 70s. What was it like to to be at an Alice session in this basement studio? Like, were there things she did to kind of set the mood or, or how did she kind of bring people onto her wavelength? <laughs> About the only thing that made her sessions unique was that she would burn a god-awful amount of incense. For Cecil McBee, recording in a room filled with the smell of incense was a first. That, that environment helped bring to thought the importance of qualities of meditation, qualities of peace, relaxation, which is, I suppose, was required while you were performing. Quite frankly, I never recorded with uh, incense in the room. It definitely quieted me down and caused me to concentrate and feel something that would help me relax and do what I had to do. Alice switched to the keyboard for something about John Coltrane, a tribute to the sound of her husband's music.
Tulsi Reynolds felt that on the album, Alice was searching for a sound that stretched beyond jazz. She was interested in the universality of the music. She was interested in not restricting the music to a jazz audience, whatever that means. Allowing the music to be bigger than that, you know, um, broader than that, by opening it up to a whole other kind of sound. Even the harp was a way for Alice to reach beyond Western music. Early on, she'd admired Dorothy Ashby, a pioneering Detroit musician who recorded jazz standards on harp in the 50s and 60s. But as Vishnu Wood explains, Alice's expression on the instrument was something very different. Alice's approach to the harp is far from traditional. And what she does with the instrument was sensational for me because she got all kinds of colors and it was kind of an astral sound, if astral makes any sense to you. For instance, Sun Ra, he, he travels in space. Her music kind of, it took me to space, which is infinite. As she discussed in 1970, Alice saw the instrument as a way to travel across space and time. When I play it, I don't know, maybe the flowingness of it or the, the way it's so harmonically and uh, melodically set, so different from uh, the piano, uh, for example. It makes me recall Egypt, ancient Egypt. It makes me seem to remember that, that, that I have a past or a history there somewhere. The title of the last track on Journey, Isis and Osiris, refers to ancient Egyptian deities. Recorded at the Village Gate in summer 1970, the piece features Alice on harp, Pharaoh Sanders on saxophone, and Rashid Ali on drums. Here, Ornette Coleman collaborator Charlie Hayden played bass, and Vishnu Wood played the oud, a string instrument he'd studied while living in Morocco. The result is a gorgeous blend of free jazz and Middle Eastern textures. Alice saw the cross-cultural sounds on Journey as a way to lead listeners to their own epiphanies. As she wrote in the liner notes, I hope that this album will be a form of meditation and a spiritual awakening for those who listen with their inner ear. The musical journey Alice took on her fourth album was the start of a creative and spiritual voyage that continued for the rest of her life. In the early 1970s, she moved from Long Island to California. In 1976, she had a vision which instructed her to renounce the secular world. She adopted the name Turiya Sangita Nanda, which means the Transcendental Lord's Highest Song of Bliss, and established the Vedantic Center. There, she and a group of followers studied Hindu scripture and sang devotional hymns. Alice experienced another world-shaking tragedy in 1982 when her first son, John Jr., died in a car accident, but she ultimately found fulfillment in pursuing a full-time spiritual life. In 1983, the Vedantic Center relocated to a 50-acre site in the Santa Monica Mountains and was renamed the Shanti Anantam Ashram. For the next two decades, all the music she would perform and record would be devotional, released privately through the ashram. 
In recent years, some of this private press work has been reissued, including a beautifully intimate 1982 album reimagined this year as Kirtan, Taria Sings, which features Alice performing alone at the organ and singing for the first time on record. Alice Coltrane eventually resumed her public music career, releasing one last album before her death of respiratory failure in 2007. In the spirit of Journey, it touched on gospel music, devotional song, and John's compositions. Michelle Coltrane recalls how during these later years, she saw her mother deeply fulfilled, especially during weekly performances she'd give for her followers at the ashram. The last 30 years was about getting to that ashram, and uh, she'd do a discourse for 30 minutes, and, and she would walk over to the organ and start, quote the song, we're going to do, ba 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 and everybody knows that's the next song, like mm-hmm, in church, mm-hmm, and, then mm-hmm. it will, and then there we would, off we'd go, chanting. She says that when she hears Journey, even though it doesn't feature vocals, its hypnotic sound immediately reminds her of that chanting. Another component to Journey in Satchinanda is the, the kind of feel of when you're chanting that if you just keep going around and around, it builds. Even if it's just a small bit of movement. Boom, 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 boom. So now we add that in. It's like, okay, so we, we kind of get locked into that. And then another layer comes. And that layer, so that I would say the, the bass line has this kind of funky thing. And then the, the harp comes in, which has this beautiful, light, kind of meditative feel. And then the other part is the extended solos. So that those three components are what I think just makes that just like a perfect kind of sound for many types of listeners. In the mid-90s, Alice revisited the title track of Journey in Satchitananda on a private press album, playing the bass line and synthesizer and backing up singers from her ashram. The track shows how the piece remained relevant to her, even as she devoted herself completely to spiritual life. In the years when Alice wasn't performing a recording for a wide audience, her music was still reaching new listeners and inspiring them with its depth and openness. In 2016, Solange Knoll said that she'd listened to a lot of Alice Coltrane in the period leading up to a seat at the table. The innovative producer and brain feeder label head Stephen Ellison, a.k.a. Flying Lotus, is Alice Coltrane's grandnephew. His grandmother, Marilyn McLeod, a songwriter best known for co-writing Diana Ross's Love Hangover, is Alice's sister. Growing up in L.A., Ellison would often visit Alice's ashram, and he's credited his aunt for giving him his first beat machine as he was getting into producing. He remembers her as someone who always looked out for others. My aunt was was very special. She was very uh, selfless person. She gave so much of herself to her, her family and people around her, their extended family from the ashram. She was the matriarch of the family. But she was also the godfather. You know, she she took care of everybody, but, you know, you, you couldn't mess with auntie. You know, it was like she was a very respected person, but always took time to listen, always took the time to share insights. But, yeah, she was she also had those moments of being, you know, a hard lady from Detroit that a lot of people didn't get to see. But. At the end of it all, she was just very, very caring. 
Ellison has sampled Alice's material in his work. The 2008 track, Auntie's Harp, combines his patented crackly beats with her flowing sound in the instrument, drawn from Alice's 1972 album, World Galaxy. As Ellison's own music career began to blossom, he says that listening to Journey and Alice's other records helped him zero in on his own creative goals. I used to send up Cyrus. I love that song the most. I think there's something about the harp instrument, you know, the way she freaked it, just kind of made it, you know, gave it like the, the kind of like Middle Eastern kind of um, harmonic ideas and stuff. Just hearing that sound was really huge. Just understanding as well, like, where she was trying to take people with the music. I think for me, it was a, kind of like a turning point in my life where I could have, you know, I was like being pulled in all different directions. You know, could I, am I supposed to be the guy who makes pop records? Am I supposed to be the guy who does all the trippy out there stuff or whatever? And I, you know, listening to my aunt's music in, in those kind of pivotal moments just kind of made me stop and be like, yeah, well, this is kind of, I want to do this to people with my music. I want to take people to these places. Brandy Younger, a jazz harp player who now records for Alice and John's label Impulse, has been a huge Alice fan since high school. She's covered Alice's works live and on record, played on Alice's own harp, and last year performed a program of Alice and John's music in the Dix Hills home studio. She says that as a black female harp player growing up in Long Island, Alice's music and legacy were like a beacon. I grew up in an all black and Hispanic neighborhood and I went to an all black and Hispanic school. So for me to start playing the harp, that was, it was like all white, right? So there's like, there's no like mixing here. It was just like, <laughs> it was all one and then it was all the other. Um, and I felt like a fish out of water. So I was able to relate to her and Dorothy Ashby at, on a cultural level. And then we've got the harp, and then we're woman. When she was in college, Younger would actually compose letters to Alice. When I think back to how obsessed I was, I used to write her letters. My, my roommate's uh, boyfriend used to edit them for me. And then I would never send them because they were just never good enough. You know, everyone, everyone in school in the jazz department, they're walking around with their John Coltrane t-shirts on. And I'm like, where's Alice Coltrane? You know, <laughs> that was my interest. As she spent more time with Alice's music and savored it both as a listener and performer, she's also reflected on the hardship that marked the era of Journey in Sachidananda. This was, what, the late 60s. The political climate, there was a lot going on. Just imagining what it could be like for a single Black mom, you know, that has recently lost their husband in a foreign place. And when I say foreign, Huntington is foreign. <laughs> Unless you are from Huntington, that's where you go to raise a family. So to be in this place that's really isolated with children, with, with your husband that you've recently lost, I mean, I can't imagine what that would feel like. But you've got to face so much. You have to emotionally face your loss. Just the sheer thought of that alone, I, I can't imagine how anyone could cope, you know, in this situation. Everyone has their way of, of dealing. And, you know, for her, she had her spirituality and the things that she went through, you know, 
It's, it's deep. She says that seeing the recent acclaim for Journey feels like a vindication. People need to see, like, this happened and you were sleeping. <laughs> or this happened and your parents were sleeping. Over the years, I, I do see, finally, the appreciation is just unfolding and unfolding. And it, it, it makes me feel really good inside to see it. Stephen Ellison also feels that appreciation for his great aunt's work has been overdue. He says it's no accident that listeners are gravitating to it now. We should have been having these conversations when she was alive, but I guess that's that's just how it always works, unfortunately. I think the music is timeless, and I think it's great that people are are resonating with it even more now on a, on a grander level, because I feel like the music is, is kind of needed right now. They need inspirational music in, in times like this. Beyond Journey's power to soothe and transport listeners, Michelle Coltrane says that the album is a testament to Alice's strength, the way she moved with grace through her darkest times and emerged with a musical gift that's kept on giving to listeners for 50 years and counting. I was devastated about the loss of a lot of, a lot of the losses that we've incurred as a family and what I've learned from my mother, what I felt from her, and what I watched is to be grateful for what you have or what you did get. She started referring to her children as her gifts, her presents. She could say, but oh, look what I lost, look what I lost. And it, of course, she had to get there. But probably in those deep parts of pain, the Lord walked her off the ledge, you know, being touched in some divine way or to have directions to say, this is the path you should take. Go this way. Come with me. Follow me. So the music is totally the background to that, you know? Um, and maybe that's what people feel. Alice Coltrane's Journey in Satchitananda ranks number 446 on Rolling Stone's new greatest albums of all time list. I'm Brittany Spanos. This has been Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums, an Amazon original podcast. Executive producers are Christian Horde, Hank Schemer, Gus Winner, and myself. This episode was produced by Hank Schemer and me. Our senior producer is Michelle Lands, mixing by Marquise Neal. Additional production help by Mary Dew and Reed Dunley. Bridget Shelsey is our production manager. Peter Miller is our music supervisor. Fact-checking by Jonathan Bernstein. Supervising executives for Amazon Music are Nathan Brackett, Morgan Jones, Steph Walkning, and Lauren D. And for Rolling Stone, Jason Fine. In addition to all those we interviewed for this episode, the producers would like to thank Dolores Brandon, Clea McDougall, Perusha Hickson, Carlos Vega, and Kathleen Hennessy for their assistance. We'd also like to cite the work of Franya J. Berkman, whose biography of Alice Coltrane was an essential resource.
In the climate-ravaged year of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven, a geoengineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she is willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Reyes Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.